Hello, and welcome to the U.S. Center for Safe Sports podcast series. At the center, we are dedicated to making athlete well-being and safety the centerpiece of sport culture. Our podcast will connect individuals to important conversations on getting the best and safest experience out of sports. Get ready to learn valuable information, shareable tips, and helpful resources to keep you engaged in the game. Today, we will be discussing the Safe Sport Code. Our guest today is Michael Henry, Chief Officer for Response and Resolution at the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Happy listening and welcome, Michael. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Let's start off by helping listeners understand what is the Safe Sport Code? So the, the Safe Sport Code is kind of the governing document for um, what we call the Response and Resolution Office at the center. And um, generally speaking, the Response and Resolution Office is the department within the center um, that was uh, set up back in March of 2017 with the center, but also authorized by Congress um, in uh, February of 2018 as um, the centralized uh, office for um, the receipt of um, investigation of and adjudication of reports of, of misconduct or abuse that happen within the context of sport. Um, so the Safe Sport Code is essentially the governing document in, in two different ways. One, it establishes the policies um, that define what is and is not um, prohibited conduct. Um, and you know, when you think about it in layman's terms, it's essentially the rules. Don't break the rules. Here's the um, types of behaviors that would violate the rules. And it covers things from um, various forms of physical abuse to emotional abuse to um, different forms of sexual abuse that happen within the context of, of the Olympic sports. Um, and then it defines the policies and procedures um, that uh, that the Response and Resolution Office and its staff abide by. So it, it defines the process through which a report can be made, um, the, the process through which the center um, might impose temporary measures if there are um, ongoing risks to the individuals or the communities uh, in, in, in sport, or um, if and when a violation is found um, and a sanction imposed um, based on misconduct, um, the, the process through which a, a respondent, uh, an individual who's been um, accused of, of doing something wrong, um, how they how they could challenge that through, say, an arbitration hearing. So it's kind of twofold. It's the policies that, that say here's what not to do. Uh, and then the procedures, uh, if and when someone um, is alleged to have engaged in misconduct and the, the, the process through which the center goes through to uh, investigate and ultimately resolve those those reports. Great. Thank you for that. And I, I look forward to kind of diving into this a little bit more. So can you tell me the difference between the code and reporting to law enforcement and the relationship between the two? Sure. So um, reporting to law enforcement is kind of a separate and independent um, function entirely. Uh, it's it's handled by the criminal justice system, which most are familiar with. Um, you know, if you've ever watched uh, CSI or any of the law and order um, types of shows, as I think many have, um, that goes to the criminal justice system in a court of law. Uh, and it's it's really when you think about the code versus um, reporting to law enforcement is the criminal justice system operates um, in the same way that the center does with the code with the penal code. So if something is against the law, if something is considered a crime, if something is considered criminal behavior based on state or federal penal codes, um, that is what's adjudicated through the criminal justice system. It's ultimately what's assessed by law enforcement um, when a report is made. Basically, did you did you violate the law? If a report is made through the center um, based on uh, someone who participates in the Olympic movement, um, who allegedly engaged in some sort of, uh, of of behavior that might be considered misconduct, we apply the code to say um, 
did, did that behavior break the rules? So in, in the criminal justice sense, it's a report to law enforcement asks whether or not this particular behavior breaks the law. Um, and within the context of the, the center and the state sport code, a report to the response and resolution office asked the question, did this individual um, who participates in the movement, did their behavior break the rules? Thank you. That's, a, that's hugely helpful. So then in the context of the code, what does jurisdiction mean? Does it apply to what the code covers or who it covers or both? That's a great question. Um, and yes, uh, the the jurisdiction when we think about it is is twofold. Um, in the legal context, you think about it as personal jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction, um, which is basically two questions. One, do you have jurisdiction over the individual who's alleged to have engaged in whatever the misconduct is? Um, basically, do they do they fall under the code? Are they part of the Olympic community? Are they someone who's even subject to those rules? That's your personal jurisdiction um, component. And then subject matter jurisdiction is um, the, the content of what happened. Essentially, the behaviors or the conduct that was reported, um, is that even conduct that's contemplated or covered by the provisions in the code? So if you're a participant under the code, that's the personal jurisdiction piece. Um, there's kind of a four prong analysis. And in, in general, it's anybody who participates meaningfully in the Olympic movement um, in, in any sort of um, capacity. So that includes coaches, athletes, trainers, medical personnel. If they participate in a meaningful way within the Olympic movement, then they likely would fall under the definition of a participant uh, in the code. Um, there's kind of a four prong analysis that includes uh, employees or, or board members of of national governing bodies or local affiliate organization. Uh, it includes individuals who have been authorized, approved or appointed by uh, a national governing body or a local affiliated organization um, to interact with um, to have regular contact with minor athletes or to have authority over minor athletes. So it's it's defined in a couple of different ways because people participate within the Olympic movement in, in a range of different types of capacities. But generally speaking, a participant is someone who who participates within the movement uh, in a way that would make them subject to the rules. Um, so that's the, that's the personal jurisdiction piece. Um, are you a participant as defined by the code? And then the subject matter piece is what we referenced earlier, which is, um, is what's been reported to the center in terms of alleged misconduct on the part of a participant, um, is that something contemplated by or covered by the provisions in the code? Um, so subject matter jurisdiction is, is what allegedly happened, is the alleged behaviors that allegedly occurred, um, something that's, that's contemplated by uh, the provisions in the code? So would it fall under the definition of a form of physical or emotional abuse? Would it constitute uh, a type of sexual misconduct um, or sexual abuse as defined by those provisions in the code? So again, you go back to the policies to determine what was reported, um, then the investigative process is what's utilized to determine whether or not that behavior, um, there was sufficient evidence to determine that that behavior occurred in a particular way. And if that behavior or conduct occurred, does it break the rule? So those are kind of the two pieces of of jurisdictional uh, of the jurisdictional analysis that we look at. Is the person covered under the code and is what that person did um, covered under the policies in the code. So now looking at another layer of the code, can you help our listeners understand the difference between exclusive and discretionary jurisdiction? Sure. So when you think about the, the center's subject matter jurisdiction, um, what types of behaviors are, colored, are, are covered by the policies um, in the Safe Sport Code, um, it's really broken down into what we call exclusive jurisdiction and discretionary jurisdiction. Um, and the easiest way to think about it is that Exclusive jurisdiction, um, while it covers a, a range of different types of things that are outlined in the uh, in the jurisdiction of the center section in the code, 
um, exclusive jurisdiction largely covers sexualized forms of misconduct. Um, so any form of uh, non-consensual sexual behaviors in, in terms of contact, sexual assault, um, inappropriate sexual communications, um, all those different forms of sexualized misconduct fall within the center's exclusive jurisdiction. Um, for discretionary jurisdiction, that covers largely non-sexual forms of, of abuse or misconduct. So think um, instances of stalking or bullying or hazing or non-sex-based um, harassment. So when you think about exclusive versus discretionary jurisdiction, um, exclusive uh, are the types of behaviors that are exclusively covered under the center's um, jurisdiction, meaning that it's really just the center who can uh, investigate and resolve um, those types of, of allegations of misconduct. Um, with discretionary matters, um, those cases can be and, and often are uh, investigated and resolved by either the national governing body or the local uh, affiliated organizations or clubs um, kind of at the grassroots level. Uh, and, and some of the rationale behind that is that when you've got um, low severity forms of bullying behaviors between two younger athletes or, um, you know, hazing instances, um, many times those those cases can actually be most effectively addressed, investigated and resolved right then and there at the grassroots level by the, the staff um, at local clubs or at the NGB level and don't necessarily need to be uh, nationalized to the center. Whereas um, sexualized forms of misconduct usually require, um, you know, a, a higher degree of experience and expertise in order to effectively investigate and resolve them, which is why the center takes all forms of sexual misconduct, um, whereas, you know, forms of physical or emotional misconduct um, can can be often effectively handled at the local level. Um, so uh, there are instances, however, when the center can take jurisdiction over a discretionary matter. Um, and those usually involve either a conflict of interest, either at the local level or the national governing body level, um, and or if the uh, the allegations are particularly severe. Um, so think of um, bullying behaviors that result in some sort of severe injury, um, hazing instances that resulted in severe injury or even death. Um, those instances would likely be um, taken on a discretionary basis by the center's investigative staff. That's very helpful. Thank you for bringing a lot more clarity to those components. And now let's let's take a step back and let's talk about why the code exists. What is its purpose? So the code's purpose is really to um, to standardize two two critical pieces, which is what are the policies um, in, in terms of expectations for behavior and conduct that um, all individuals who participate in the Olympic movement um, need to abide by. So, you know, refraining from engaging anything that could be um, sexually abusive, physically abusive or emotionally abusive, um, particularly geared towards protecting athletes who participate in sport. But it applies across the the board in terms of uh, providing a baseline for these are the types of, uh, of conduct and behavior that will not be tolerated within the Olympic movement. Um, and then the secondary piece is establishing what that process and those procedures are. Um, for the investigation and resolution of allegations of misconduct for those individuals um, who uh, who participate in the movement. So it's 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 twofold. Um, establish the rules and then establish the process through which violations of the rules are processed uh, and resolved. All right. Thank you so much for that. So then following with that, can you tell me a little bit about how the code interacts with the minor athlete abuse prevention policies and how the two exist in keeping athletes safe from abuse in sport. 
Sure. So they they serve kind of two separate functions. Um, we'll start with the minor athlete abuse prevention policies. We, th- those are what we call proactive policies. They're designed to facilitate circumstances and or um, prevent certain circumstances from from taking place that would expose minor athletes to particular types of risks. So they, they really are um, designed to reduce the risk that minor athletes are ever put in a position where they're there could be instances of abuse or misconduct perpetuated against them. Um, the code basically says if and when there are behaviors um, that occur that constitute abuse or misconduct, um, these are the rules that say this is and is not okay, and these are the policies and procedures that define how those uh, alleged incidents would be handled, investigated, and ultimately resolved. So when you think about the, the minor athlete abuse prevention policies, they are proactive standards to try to prevent riskier circumstances from ever taking place so that we can eliminate abuse from ever happening in the first place, um, provides uh, required um, components for training to ensure that everybody um, who participates in the movement, um, every adult who participates in the movement and who who fit for certain criteria are effectively trained in spotting um, abuse. Um, They know what to look for. They know how to avoid it. And then policies to prevent circumstances that would pose uh, particular types of risk to athletes. And then the code um, defines what would constitute misconduct or abuse if it were to occur and the, and the process and policies and procedures um, through which that would be addressed. Thank you. That's hugely helpful in understanding how each one of these things play an important role in youth sports. So then let's steer back to the code and let's focus a little bit on the policy and procedures. So can you talk about how the policy section of the code and the procedure section of the code are different? So the the first um, portion of the code is the policies. And so um, it it lays out the definitions that permeate each of those policies. So that includes consent definition, legal capacity, incapacitation, um, which specifically relate to um, some of the sexualized forms of misconduct and or intimate relationships where a power imbalance exists, uh, et cetera. Um, And then you have the prohibited conduct section that actually lays out what are um, different types of behaviors that would be considered prohibited conduct. So that's uh, instances like various forms of child abuse, sexual misconduct, um, gender based discrimination or harassment, sexual exploitation. uh, And then you get into instances of emotional and physical misconduct. um, So uh, various forms of bullying, hazing, other inappropriate instances that would be physically or emotionally abusive within the context of sport. Um, And then you get into the procedures, which is, um, you know, it lays out the requirements for mandatory reporting of certain types of uh, of incidents, uh, including sexual misconduct or child abuse. Um, It tracks uh, the procedures and and process through which a report can be made to the center, um, how that's then um, uh, worked through the process in terms of um, conducting uh, preliminary inquiry, what's the standard of proof, um, all the way down to, uh, you know, how how investigative, how the investigative process um, plays out, um, what the specific uh, opportunities, options are for parties who participate in that, um, how the center effectuates temporary measures, um, what, what the various types of sanctions that the center can impose are and how they're um, how they're contemplated as part of the response and resolution process. Um, and then separately, um, if and when a, a decision is rendered on 
um, a particular respondent and a sanction imposed. That respondent has the opportunity to request an arbitration hearing before an independent arbitrator. So the last section of the code outlines the rules, process, uh, and policies regarding um, how that actual hearing itself um, plays out, given that it's um, it's technically effectuated through uh, an independent arbitration body. Great, thank you for clarifying. So then I know there have been multiple versions of the code over time. Can you help our listeners understand a little bit more about the different versions and what has been adapted or changed in those different iterations? Sure. So the, the first code was was issued when the Senate first opens its door in, in March of 2017. Um, and each subsequent year, right around the same time, um, on essentially an annual cycle, um, the center consistently is looking at ways to improve, clarify um, the provisions, policies, and process that, that's defined within the code. So as the center um, kind of uh, first started out and as it's evolved over the last several years, um, it's figured out, you know, either um, you know, particular areas that could be improved, particular provisions that needed to be added to cover um, certain types of, uh, of, of more novel circumstances, um, or to, to tweak certain aspects of the process to ensure that it was clear, um, fair, uh, and, and that we were providing, um, you know, folks who were, who were looking for information about what the process is and isn't and what, what's included in it, making sure that that was clearly defined throughout. So essentially making uh, any sort of augmentations, clarifications, and improvements to the code over time. So now looking at the new 2020 Safe Sport Code, can you walk us through some of those updates? Sure. So, um, you know, there there was a couple of clarifications that we wanted to make in the 2020 code um, just to make sure certain provisions were crystal clear as to what all they covered. Um, one of the first one was the actual participant definition itself. Um, you know, one of the changes that we that we made was to ensure that it included expressly uh, employees as well as board members of national governing bodies or local affiliate organizations or the USOPC um, to ensure that those were participants um, beholden to the, the provisions in the code, just like the rest of the participants within the movement. Um, one of the other things we did was clarified the aiding and abetting provision. Um, aiding and abetting um, is a, a certain type of prohibited conduct wherein um, it, it prohibits individuals from essentially uh, encouraging or, or facilitating or promoting the commission of prohibited conduct. Um, and the way that it had previously been defined, it really um, related directly to an act. Uh, and there are other types of instances where um, one can kind of facilitate um, the, the commission of prohibited conduct, not by doing not by doing anything specifically, but by um, failing to do something over which they had control. So making sure that we clarify that that language does include all the different uh, instances or circumstances um, wherein one could could engage in aiding and abetting. Um, so that was one of the updates that we made. And then uh, we also made a clarification to the reporting requirements, um, namely making sure that um, you know individuals knew that they didn't have to know that, um, you know, say sexual misconduct had occurred, um, they simply had to reasonably suspect it, uh, what actually, which actually tracks some of the statutory language um, in terms of reasonably suspect child abuse rather than you don't have to know that, that, that something is occurring, you don't have any obligation to investigate it, making sure that folks were clear that really if you reasonably suspect um, sexual misconduct that you had to immediately report that to the center um, so uh, clarifying some of those provisions, not not new new uh, provisions that we added, but more clarifications to ensure that uh, it meant exactly what um, what the intent was. 
Thank you. That helps to have uh, a snapshot on some of those updates. So then are there any other noteworthy sections that have been updated that you'd like to help our listeners understand better? Yeah, there was um, there was a couple of new provisions that we that we actually did add. Um, one of them was a new provision called willful tolerance. Um, and previously, much of, of these types of circumstances would have been covered under the aiding and abetting provision. Um, but what we found is that there was um, a an instance that wasn't expressly covered under under the code, which is not necessarily aiding and abetting the commission of of prohibited conduct, but really knowing that it was happening um, and and not doing anything about it. So that provision is specific to uh, adult participants um, who have uh, a a power imbalance or a position of authority. So think of an instance where an adult coach um, supervising minor athletes as part of a team um, knew that there was a hazing ritual that happened every year. Um, that that put, could potentially put individuals at risk or or, or um, even result in harm. They didn't do anything uh, about it. They didn't facilitate it. They didn't even promote it. They just knew it was happening. And particularly when you're in a position of authority, we want to make sure that um, you know it is a clear expectation of people who participate in the movement, particularly coaches and trainers and those with um, positions of authority, that they know they do have an obligation to step in if they know that that um, prohibited conduct is occurring. Um, like that example. So that new provision makes certain that um, not only uh, is that expectation clear for individuals uh, in terms of it being a standard of behavior, but also that it, it, it would be applied as a, a type of um, of policy violation if if coaches were were found to have known about these types of instances and done nothing to to stop it. Um, and then lastly, the, a, a new change um, to the code uh, is actually more procedure based, which was um, as I mentioned earlier, at the at the end of the response resolution process, um, respondents always have an opportunity to challenge the center's decision um, via a, an arbitration hearing. Um, one of the the pieces of feedback that we had heard um, over the the course of the year was that um, per the code, there was a five business day window after the issuance of a decision to request that arbitration hearing. And what we were finding is that respondents really um, wanted to have a little bit more time, um, either to seek out um, uh, legal counsel, if they if they so choose, or to um, you know, spend a little bit more time going through what's often a hundred um, hundred plus page uh, investigation report and, and notice of decision before determining whether or not they really wanted to to proceed to an arbitration hearing. So that has been expanded from five business days to a ten business day window um, during which a respondent could could request an arbitration hearing following a decision. So now that we understand more about the code, its purpose, and some of the components, I'd like to look at it from a few different perspectives. So if I'm a coach, club owner, or parent, what do I need to know? How would this apply to my everyday life? Um, if, if you're a club owner or a parent or a coach, what you need to know is that the code exists, that it defines um, what's acceptable types of behaviors and conduct for people who participate in the movement in any capacity. Um, and so that you know what's what's the what the standards are for acceptable behaviors. Um, many many of those are going to be commonsensical. Um, you know, if you're an adult coach, don't engage in intimate relationships with your athletes. Most most everybody knows that they don't need necessarily a rule to tell them that. But um, you know, in other instances like uh, various forms of emotional or physical abuse, um, you know, it's it's basically understanding that this lays out the standards for how we interact with each other, regardless of the role that we play. Um, 
you know, in terms of how it'll affect your everyday life, if you understand what the policies are, then you can you can make sure that your behavior abides by them and also spot if and when others behaviors doesn't um, comport with with the standards set out in the code. Um, what that means is that if you experience um, certain types of behaviors or, or other forms of misconduct that you know um, that it's against the rules and that it can be reported and that ultimately there's a process through which um, those allegations could be investigated and resolved in order to ensure that they don't happen again. Okay, so then if someone needs to make a report or has made a report regarding a code violation, what would you want them to know and understand? So there's a number of different procedural pieces of the code that, that help someone understand if I make a report, what is this going to look like? Um, so, you know, th those provisions deal with privacy and confidentiality, what uh, what the reporting process looks like, um, you know, the circumstances um, in, in which the center would impose um, temporary measures. Um, and then, you know, what we would always encourage um, particularly claimants to understand is that the the reporting process is also an opportunity to get information and to ask questions about that process. So while the code lays out, here's what a report um, would look like, here's how it would be handled throughout the response and resolution process, um, you know, claimants should know that they can still make their own decision about, um, you know, the who, what, when, where of, of how they participate in that process. Um, reports can make can be made confidentially, they can be made anonymously, uh, and there's different ways per the code how those types of circumstances are, are handled. Um, in, in some instances, the center may not be able to, to proceed on, a, on an anonymous report, in other instances it may, um, and in some instances the, the center may not be able to proceed with a formal investigation if a, if a claimant doesn't wish to, to participate in that investigative process. In other instances, there may be independent corroborating evidence where it could. So all those questions are answered in the SaySport code and also could be answered uh, if someone wishes to make a report, either online or over the phone. So um, what I would want claimants to understand is that that information is all contained within the code in terms of what the rules are um, so that they can assess, is this thing that happened to me against the rules? And then to understand what that process looks like if and when they were to make a report. And if they have any questions about that, always to feel free to reach out to the center and talk with our staff. They can do that confidentially and in a way that doesn't obligate them to do anything else um, in that process, they can make those decisions for themselves. Looking at it from the other side, from the perspective of a respondent, what would you want them to know and understand? So a respondent is the term that we use uh, in the code for someone who's been accused of engaging in some form of misconduct. Um, and while certainly no one would want to find themselves in the position of being accused of having done something wrong, like we discussed earlier, one, the code lays out um, what's considered prohibited conduct. So it, it outlines the standards for behaviors and how we interact with each other to ensure people don't break the rules. And the other piece would be, um, you know, for, for respondents, the code also lays out the process through which um, those accusations or allegations are, are uh, investigated and ultimately resolved. Um, what I would want respondents to know is that the code lays out a, a thorough, comprehensive, fair process for um, investigating allegations. Um, not all allegations um, are, are necessarily true or, or not all behaviors necessarily um, violate the rules, um, but that's what's played out through this investigative process. So the code lays out what that process looks like, answers some questions as to what to expect, uh, and then if someone finds himself in, in a position of being a respondent, they can look to the code for, um, for uh, understanding 
how we're going to get from point A to point B. We have a report uh, of alleged misconduct. How are we going to investigate and ultimately determine um, what occurred and whether or not what occurred um, violates the rules? Thank you for helping us understand the code through those different perspectives and for helping explain the code overall and how it applies and its purpose. Now that you know about the Safe Sport Code, if you know of or suspect abuse or misconduct, report it to www.uscenterforsafesport.org. You can report anywhere, anytime on our 24-7 portal. If you have confidential or anonymous questions and want support for yourself or someone else, contact the Safe Sport Helpline through the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at www.safesporthelpline.org. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.